All right, let's get after it. If you have your Chronicles of Narnia, uh, let's go to the Don Shredder chat. Oh, okay. Y'all brought Bibles. That's awkward. Uh, why don't y'all go to Mark chapter 7. I'll go to the Voyage of the Don Shredder, and I'll, uh, I'll meet you there in Mark 7. Mark chapter 7. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in front of you um, or underneath your seat. We're going to finish up our messy, seri- or messy Kingdom series this morning um, about the parables and the stories that Jesus told. Uh, I thought it would be appropriate and it fit in very nicely what we're talking about this morning uh, to read for you a short little passage out of um, the Chronicles of Narnia. If you're familiar with it, written by C.S. Lewis. Um, he wrote a story, uh, comprised multiple parts of this alternate universe, this alternate world, Narnia. Um, there's this um, lion who is redeeming and making it new, Aslan. Um, and there's the adventures of these kids as they went back and forth from Narnia to their world. Um, and so uh, there's a lot of Christ parallels um, back and forth between the Chronicles of Narnia and what we might find in the scriptures. So this morning I wanted to read for you a, a quick little passage, story time, a little bit, okay? That was appropriate. We're talking about the stories Jesus told. We'll read a little story. So just sit back, relax. Just a quick little story. Um, I'll set it up for you real quickly. Um, there's three big characters in here. The first is Eustace. He's going to do most of the talking, okay? Uh, Eustace is a greedy, selfish little boy. Uh, and he stumbled upon some dragon treasure. Um, and dragons in the story are the epitome of greedy, selfish beings. Um, and so he kind of takes the treasure. And he ends up turning into a dragon himself, right? It's not long before he finds out, oh, I am the dragon. I am a dragon. So he becomes a dragon. Um, he's in lots of pain. He's very lonely. Um, he's not able to have the relationships he wants to have. And when it's time to go home, he can't go with them because he's a dragon. Um, so he's in a bad spot because of his selfish greediness because he's become the monster um, that everyone doesn't want to be around. And then there's Edmund, who's his cousin, uh, who's the good guy, the hero in the story. And then there's Aslan, who's the, the great big lion, uh, the Christ figure. Um, the one who comes and saves and redeems, okay? So those are three big characters. We're going to pick it up. Eustace is talking to Edmund on a morning. Well, last night, I was more miserable than ever. And I looked up and saw the very last thing I expected. A huge lion coming slowly toward me. And one queer thing was there was no moon last night, and there was no moonlight. But there was where the lion was. And it came nearer and nearer, and I was terribly afraid of it. You may think that being a dragon... I could have knocked any lion out easily enough. But it wasn't that kind of fear. I wasn't afraid of it eating me. I was just afraid of it, if that makes sense. Well, it came up close to me and looked straight into my eyes, and I shut my eyes tight. But that wasn't any good because it still told me to follow it. You mean it spoke, said Edmund? Well, I don't know. Now that you mention it, I don't think that it did. But it told me all the same. And I knew I'd have to do what it told me, so I got up and followed it. And it led me a long way into the mountains, and there was always this moonlight over and around the lion wherever we went. So at last we came to the top of the mountain, a mountain I'd never seen before, and on top of this mountain there was a garden with trees and fruit and everything. And in the middle of it there was a well. I knew it was a well because you could see the water bubbling up from the bottom of it, but it was a lot bigger than most wells, like a very big round bath with marble steps going down into it. The water was as clear as anything, and I thought if I could just get in there and bathe, It would ease the pain. But the lion told me, I must undress first. Mind you, I I don't know if he was saying any words out loud or not. I was just going to tell him that I couldn't undress because I didn't have clothes on, when suddenly I thought that dragons are snaky sort of things, and snakes can cast their skins. Oh, of course, thought I, that's what the lion means. So I started scratching myself, and my scales began coming off all over the place. 
And then I scratched a little deeper, and instead of just scales coming off here and there, my whole skin started peeling off beautifully, like it does after an illness or as if I was a banana. In a minute or two, I just stepped out of it. I could see it lying there beside me, looking rather nasty. It was the most lovely feeling, so I started to go down into the well for my bath. But just as I was going to put my feet into the water, I looked down and saw that they were all hard and rough and wrinkled and scaly, just like before. Oh, that's all right, I said. It only means I have another smaller skin on underneath the first one. I'll have to get out of this one, too. So I scratched and tore again, and this underskin peeled off beautifully. And out I stepped and left it lying beside the other one and went down to the well for my bath. Well, exactly the same thing happened again. And I thought to myself, oh, dear, how many skins do I have? For I was longing to bathe my legs and my arms. So I scratched away for the third time and got off the third skin, just like the two others, and stepped out of it. But as soon as I looked at myself in the water, I knew it had been no good. Then the lion said, but I don't know if it spoke, You will have to let me undress you. I was afraid of his claws. I can tell you, but I was pretty nearly desperate now. So I just lay flat down on my back and let him do it. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. You know, if you ever picked the scab of a sore place, it hurts like bilio, but it is so much fun to see it coming away. I know exactly what you mean, said Edmund. Well, he peeled the beastly stuff right off, just as I thought I'd done to myself the other three times, only they hadn't hurt. And there it was lying on the grass only ever so much thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than the others had been. And there was I, a smooth and soft boy as a peeled switch and smaller than I had been. Then he caught hold of me. I didn't like that much, for I was very tender underneath now that I had no skin on, and he threw me into the water. It smarted like anything, but only for a moment. And after that, it became perfectly delicious. And as soon as I started swimming and splashing, I found that all the pain had gone away. And then I saw why. I turned into a boy again. You'd think me simply phony if I told you how I felt about my own arms. I know they have no muscle and are pretty moldy compared with others, but I was glad to see them. <laughs> After a bit, the lion took me out and dressed me. He dressed you, said Edmund, with his paws. Well, I don't exactly remember that bit, but he did somehow or another. In new clothes, the same ones that I've got on, as a matter of fact. And then suddenly I was back here with you which is what makes me think it was all just a dream. No, it wasn't a dream, said Edmund. Well, why not? Well, there are the clothes, for one thing, and, well, you've been undragoned. <laughs> what do you think it was then, Eustace asked. I think you've seen Aslan, said Edmund. Edmund, uh, if you remember from the very beginning story, um, was a traitor, and he had already been kind of forgiven and redeemed, made new by Aslan. So he was familiar with what would happen when Aslan approached. So you have this, this parable, this story of a boy who had become the monster, right? He was selfish, greedy, he was the dragon. And he wanted to undress, and he wanted to come back to what he was before. He wanted to get rid of that. He was scratching off the scales, and he couldn't get down to the core. And Aslan shows up and says, you got to let me do it. And he lays down, and it hurts. But he takes the clothes off, and he, he's a boy again. He's a boy again. We're going to wrap up our series this morning. Keep that, that story in your mind um, by talking about maybe what's at the foundation of the kingdom announcement for human beings, you and I, which is the transformation of our very selves. 
with the kingdom coming, you and I find that our very character, our very hearts are transformed as part of this grand scale project, these promises that are being fulfilled in and through the person of Jesus. So we're going to be in Mark chapter 7. If you have your Bibles, Mark chapter 7. We'll review for just a couple minutes where we've been so far in this series. We'll wrap it up. I think this is our sixth week in it. Um, We've been talking about the kingdom of God. Uh, In Mark 1, Jesus shows up and says, Good news, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. We've seen that the the biblical gospel is the good news of a new king. Mark 1, 14-15. This is the gospel according to Jesus. There's a new king in charge. Things will be run differently. We have, in so many ways, reversed the story of the scriptures to make it about escape. And and we'll escape the world. We'll escape these bodies. We'll escape the earth. When in fact, it's about transformation. It's about redemption. The story of the gospel is not that we're going to get sucked out of earth into heaven or out of our bodies. But instead, that God has come back and reclaimed it. There's new management in charge. Things will be run differently here and now. He's going to redeem and reclaim what is rightfully his. Now this phrase, kingdom of God, um, is a loaded phrase. It's, it's, it has a huge story behind it. It'd be like saying Mount, um, or Sam and Frodo reached Mount Doom, right? You, you have to know the whole story behind that. If you don't get that, it's a Lord of the, the Rings reference. There's a huge story behind that. So when he says the kingdom of God, there's this big story. Um, and we've seen the scriptures, um, and, and we've talked about, we might summarize the kingdom announcement in this way. That through Jesus, when the kingdom of God is being announced, what it means is through Jesus, Israel's God is setting up his promised reign on earth as it is in heaven. And and one of our key scriptures as we've gone through it is Isaiah 52, 7 through 10. I'll read it for you. Isaiah 52, 7 through 10. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, to God's people, your God reigns. He's here and he's in control. The voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice. Together they sing for joy. For eye to eye they see the return of the Lord to Zion. Break forth together into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. He's bared his holy armies, flexed before the eyes of the nations. And all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. The good news. Your God reigns. He's here and he's taking control. And so a couple of things that will happen. Your enemies will be judged. Things that don't belong in creation will be judged and gotten away with, will be um, rid from creation. His people will be vindicated, gathered in. Salvation, glory. The scriptures say that the whole earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord like water is over the seas. Which is an interesting, interesting idea there, picture. Water is the sea. The earth will be filled with the glory like the waters over the seas. So you have this kingdom announcement. And, and we've been trying to, to, to hit on over the past few weeks the idea that this should change things. This should create in us a new way of living, a new way of seeing the scriptures, um, and a new understanding of the world around us. Um, primarily because a new reality, a new power. There's something new that's happened in the history of human beings and the world that we live in. We can say it like this. And follow me here. Since about approximately 2,000 years ago... The world has not been business as usual. This is, I think, one of the biggest 
um, one of the larger mistakes some Christians have made, particularly in our cultures. We've lost the historicity. We've lost the sense of where we are in the story and what's happening, what has happened, what is happening. And we would imagine that things are, again, business as usual. The world is running just the way the world has always run. But the scriptures say, no, that's not the case. With Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, a whole new world was opened up. We need a historical perspective, an historical urgency. We might call it, if you were using big biblical words, an eschatological perspective. The eschaton, eschatology. In things, last things. This is why the entire New Testament considers themselves to be in the last times. They were not wrong. We might look back and go, well, it's been 2,000 years. It obviously wasn't the last. No, they were completely correct because a new foundational, eternal world had entered into our world, the kingdom of God. It's not business as usual. And kingdom people, as we've seen for the past few weeks, are called to live new and transformed lives. They're called to find life and joy and peace inside of the kingdom, inside of God's reign as it is growing. The seed has been planted and it's growing and even now birds are coming into nests and find refuge in the branches the tree behind us. You've got to catch this. A lot of people look at Jesus in the Gospels and they go, what he's saying doesn't work. What he's saying doesn't work. Particularly when it comes to his ethics. You cannot use money that way. It does not work. You cannot love people that way. You cannot love your enemies. You cannot not fight back. Life doesn't work that way. You cannot um, be that humble. You cannot have that kind of childish faith. And you would be correct. Unless there was a new reality, a whole new world that had opened up. This is what we miss when we go back to the Gospels. The only way that these things work and are possible and you are called to do them and participate in them is if there's a new breath blowing through creation. The breath of new creation, the breath of the kingdom of God, the breath of God's glory and salvation. Almost as if that same breath, the spirit was dwelling inside of the people so called to live. There's a new reality. I think I mentioned it a few weeks ago. Um, a theologian was once asked, when were you saved? And he said, approximately 33 AD. That's when I was saved. That's when the battle was won. That's when the world was changed. That's when all of this started. Now, I figured it out a little bit later. But that's when it happened. And this is what it means when the kingdom of God has come. And when we look back and say the kingdom did come and is coming through and with because of Jesus. Now here's where the rubber kind of meets the road. Because when Jesus comes into the world and he announces the kingdom and he calls human beings like you and me to follow him on his kingdom project, he's not in a neutral arena. What I mean by that is it's, it's not a, a blank slate that he's talking to or referring to. As if there's no real good and no real bad. It's just kind of this blank slate and now we get to do what we want to do, what we'd like to decide to do. Instead, he comes into a world that's already oppressed. That's already in the world of the Gospels under demonic kind of oppression. That has darkness and injustice. And he's, he's announcing the kingdom to people, to human beings who are not neutral. They're fallen. They've gone the wrong way. It's not a blank slate where they can just decide to do whatever. He comes to human beings, just like when he comes to you and I. And we have years and years and years of bad habits behind us. Anyone who's tried to follow Christ knows that if you spent 
17 years doing something wrong, more than likely it'll take you a few years to figure out how to do it right. Why? Well, you spent 17 years getting really good at that. <laughs> he comes into a world that it's not neutral. It's taken a stand on the side of wickedness. And indeed, when we look at our own hearts, it seems like so have we. Which means there's a battle to be fought, which is what Jesus believed he was doing on the cross. And it means there's work of transformation to be done in human beings. And indeed, that was at the center of the promises for the coming kingdom. So let's look at this. I want to show you this in the Gospels. We'll look at some Old Testament texts together. Mark 7, verse 14. The transformation of the whole self, okay? we got a parable here. We might not think it's a parable. It's not a story. It's just a cryptic saying. But the word parable is a lot more flexible in the Greek and in the Gospels than we might imagine it. We might call it the parable of the sewage heart or the parable of the toilet heart. You'll see. And he called to the people, to him again, and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside of a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. Okay, um, this is from a, a context, starting in chapter 7, of a controversy between the Pharisees and Jesus about hand washing and kind of these food purity rituals, okay? So he says, hey, what goes into you doesn't make you dirty, doesn't defile you, doesn't make you unclean, it's what comes out of you. Now, if we had no more context, we'd be going, what in the world? I mean, you, you follow the thought process, right? It's not what comes into you, it's what comes out of you. It's what comes out of you that makes you dirty. Oh, okay, Jesus. So uh, they entered the house and left the people, and the disciples asked him about the parable. Hey, what was that about? <laughs> This is common, especially in the Gospel of Mark. Jesus will say something that's very offensive, cryptically, in public. And then when he retreats to the house with just his disciples, he'll explain it to them in detail. This is a way of avoiding uh, a, a quick death. When he entered the house and left the people, the disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart but his stomach, and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. Verse 20, And he said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things come from within and they defile a person. So Jesus tells here a parable about the uncleanness of humans. Uncleanness, dirtiness. The fallenness of human beings. He tells a parable. And he kind of makes a potty joke here. He says, it's not what goes into you, but it's what goes out of you. Actually, that's softening up for you from the Greek. The Greek is actually two into clauses. It's not what goes into you, it's what goes into the sewage that defiles you. And so I was like, what in the world? He's like, okay, follow me here. Um, when you put food into your mouth, it doesn't actually affect you. It doesn't actually get to the center of who you are in a way that would change you. In a way that would really affect what God is after. What, what was really happening, he calls it the heart. Um, and he's not talking about like this, this red misshapen organ right? that's pumping blood through your body. He's talking about the seat of your personality. Um, like the, where everything happens. Where your feelings happen, where your thoughts happen. We might use the mind for that term. It's a metaphorical term. We also use the heart for that, right? I feel it in my heart. That's what we're talking about. We're using it metaphorically. He says it's the heart. He says that's where the dirty things come from. You can put whatever food you want in, and it can go out however it wants to. It's never going to actually affect the heart, which is where all these actions, all these actual dirty things come from. 
Because it's within the hearts that those things come from. So he, he disregards the purity laws. And he instead diagnoses the heart. Because the heart is what has defiled human beings. Now, one of the reason this was uh, so controversial is because the, the Jewish people this time had some heroes. Like war heroes. Um, Michelle has mentioned them. Um, the, the Maccabees, the, the Jewish freedom fighters. And not too long ago, they had died rather than eat unclean food. Because these food laws were a way of separating Israel from the pagans. It was a boundary marker. Who are the Jewish people? Who is, who's Israel? Well, those who are kosher. Those who eat the right things. Who is not? Well, the pagans. Those who don't eat are kosher laws. Think of Daniel when he's in Babylon. And he refuses to eat the food the king offers him. Why? Because I'm an Israelite. If I eat your food, then I have now crossed over into your culture. I've now crossed over into your community. I'm no longer separated from the pagans. It also served the, these food laws, these kosher laws, these washing laws. It also served to um, symbolize um, kind of a, a deeper meaning of cleanliness and uncleanliness and dirt and purity and those type of things. So in the mind of a Hebrew from way back when, um, there was always this, this understanding that the world needed to be ordered. That there were clean things and unclean things. That there were things that belonged over here and things that belonged over here. And the purity laws helped ingrain that in the Hebrew mind. Which is why they play such an important role when it comes to the temple. To be in covenant with God. Things have to be in the right place. To approach Him. To be near Him. Things have to be matched up. It was a symbol that there are dirty things. There are unclean things. Well, Jesus comes along and says, okay, um, it's time to, to get to the truth of the matter. And the truth of the matter is that it's not this food that's defiling you. It's your heart. It's your heart. It's the very seat, the very nature of who you are. It's the inside of you that's defiling you. Now, Jesus is not the first person to say such things. In fact, this is a classic prophetic statement. Um, go to Jeremiah if you have your Bibles. The book of Jeremiah. Once we read this, you can keep your finger there uh, to be back. Jeremiah 17. Jeremiah gave probably the most famous indictment against the heart of the prophets. Um, one that would have been familiar to Jesus and his hearers. Jeremiah 17. Jesus is definitely not the first to make this diagnosis of the heart. While you're in Jeremiah, I'll read a couple things and I'll meet you there. In Genesis chapter 6, um, right before the flood, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was so great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart were only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man, and it grieved him to his heart. The heart, as the Lord looks down, a heart of man seems to be just spewing forth filth. It seems to be just, the only thing it produces is, is evilness and wickedness. Um, we might look in Ecclesiastes 9.3, which says, The hearts of the children of men are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live. And then we look at Jeremiah 17, we'll look at verse 9. Maybe the most stinging indictment you have in the prophets. He says this, Jeremiah, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? He says, one, the heart is a liar. You don't understand it. It will deceive you. It will trick you. You have no control over it. If there's anything you should know about yourself, it's that you can rationalize anything to yourself. This is where a Christian community comes in um, in a big way in trying to live the life of Jesus. 
you need other people to point out your sin. I mean, you just really do. If other people are not, you are not noticing your sin. And there's no way around that. If other people are not sharpening you, if you're not living life with other people, you're not being sharpened. The heart is deceitful of all things and it's desperately sick. He's saying it's dying. There's no cure. There's no need to resuscitate. Not because it's signed an order, because there's no point. It can't work. It's desperately sick. Jeremiah might chuckle, except he was pretty intense, um, when he hears people say, you should just really trust your heart. Jeremiah would go, well, take what your heart's telling you and go in the exact opposite direction. (laughs) Run as fast away from that as possible. The heart is desperately sick. It's deceitful above all things. This is a prophetic, classic move that Jesus makes here. He diagnoses the heart. What he's saying um, is that sin or wickedness, these outward signs that we see in Mark, evil thoughts, adultery, covetousness, slander, envy, those things are just symptoms of an underlying or deeper disease. Now, this is a big distinction to make between uh, symptom and disease. If you're sick, you want the doctor to distinguish between symptom and disease. You don't want to just treat symptoms. That's a bad way to deal with something. You want to go to the root of the issue. If you're just treating symptoms, that's not good news. You want to go attack the root of it. What Jesus is saying here is that you and I, I mean, follow the the words here, a little tricky. You and I aren't sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. You follow the, the, the direction there? We're not sinners because we sin, as if we, we do something bad, we commit adultery, and then, oh no, we were sinners. You're now a sinner. Why? Because you sin. No, the sin itself, the actual outward action, is just a symptom of what was always on the inside. It's coming, it's boiling up from the inside. Um, there's a scholar, Johann Bingle, who says, the filth of the toilet, going from this parable, the filth of the toilet is not so great as that of a human heart not yet cleansed. Who thoroughly weighs this? Who really deals with this fact? The human heart <coughs> is wicked. Is wrong. John Owen would say, temptation and occasion put nothing into a man, but only draw out what was already there. This is true when you think of temptation. Temptation is an internal thing. It's not external. Um, that's a category mistake. Semantically, technically, language-wise, it might be right. Um, so, for instance, I could tempt you by giving you a verbal um, question, right? But unless there's something in your heart that would want to latch onto that, it's really not a temptation for you. If I go out into the street today and someone walks up to me and goes, would you like to have some meth? No, thank you. That's not a temptation for me at all. I mean, I can, I can promise you guys, it's not. There's not one tiny cell in my body that would want to do that. At least right now, today. That's not a temptation. So if someone comes to me, technically, was I tempted? Well, I mean, I guess if someone said it to me, but that wasn't a temptation. There was never any chance where I was going to do that. But there are other things that get presented to me, and I start to want to jump at it. I want to take that. I want to do that. Why? Well, because that was in my heart to begin with. That's why things tempt you that don't tempt me and things tempt me that don't tempt you. Sends a symptom of the underlying disease that we have here. I was talking to a high schooler um, a couple weeks ago. 
and she was, we were talking about like wars um, and, and the retelling of wars, and in particular, the context was of Holocaust, and then she was going, um, I mean, I feel like I hear about Holocaust a lot, and, and she had this idea, she goes, what if, what if we just stop telling people about it? Um, what if we stop telling people about what happened, and, and what if we, what if we like, took all the weapons and nukes and things like that and destroyed them and or hid them? And so then her idea, what she was getting at, was that we would have a generation coming up who didn't know about war. And who didn't know that there were the means to have war. And she was like, what would happen? I mean, what if, I mean, maybe we keep retelling all these horrible stories and we're like learning things from them. And we're like, oh yeah, that's a possibility. Things like that. What if we just got rid of all of it and then this next generation had no clue that it existed? Like, well, it's an interesting idea. It would be an interesting, dangerous experiment. Um, we had like a Men in Black, like, I don't know if you've seen the movie, like, Dick, and we all just forget about what happened. Um, I was like, but, but here's why I might think that might not work. Have you ever watched toddlers play? They don't need to be taught to fight each other for what they want. I said, I think that's what crumbles the experiment. You don't need to teach them that. That's not a learned behavior. That's from somewhere deep within them. I mean, toddlers do all kinds of things that they've hopefully never seen in their life. <laughs> I mean, just hope that at home they're not seeing that happen. But they're doing that. Why? Because it's just natural inside of them. They're cute little wicked kids. Because <laughs> we're all wicked. Because we're all wicked. They don't need to be taught to do that. So maybe it would take them a while to get the weapons developed, right? But there's no reason at all, I think, to think that when they're adults they would not fight for what they want. And have conflict with other groups. It just doesn't work that way. If you follow philosophy um, and things like that, uh, not too long ago we were sold a bill of rights called modernity or the enlightenment. Um, saying that our progress, uh, our human ability would be able to, in a sense, bring us salvation. We'd be able to get the medicine. We'd be able to get the technology. We'd be able to figure this thing out. We'd, in fact, we'd end war. And, and if you probably heard this term being thrown around a lot, um, often misused, post-modernity. We're in a post-modern world. What post-modernity is doing is preaching the fall to modernity. And saying, guess what? It didn't work. Why didn't it work? Because of us. Because of us. You can get all the technology you want, but if you have wicked people controlling it, it doesn't help anybody. We have huge advances in medicine. We can cure all kinds of diseases and, and problems now. But we just don't give that medicine to the people who need it. Or we can't give it to the people who need it. Because there are human beings involved. Jesus diagnoses the heart. Jeremiah is speaking here in chapter 17 out of a context of the covenant. And he's talking about the covenant God formed with Israel. And how it kept breaking. It kept being broken apart. It wasn't working. He said there's three parts. You have God. You have the covenant itself. The promises and stipulations. And you have man. And he goes, God fulfilled all of his parts. The covenant itself, like a marriage, there's nothing wrong with that. He says, I found the problem. It was the humans. It was the heart of the humans. It was the woman who was unfaithful in the marriage. Jesus here diagnoses the heart. It's a sin. It's just a symptom of a much deeper underlying heart condition. But Jesus doesn't say this. He's not offering these diagnoses. Um, he's not offering these observations just to say, bad news. This is what you've got, uh, and you better learn how to deal with it. Um, no, there's good news that comes along with the kingdom. There's good news that comes along with it, because 
inherent in the promises of the coming kingdom was the idea that there would be a washing of the heart. There would be a cleansing of the heart. That human beings would be washed clean. Um, Go back to Jeremiah if you're not still there. Um, We'll be in chapter 31 now. Jeremiah 31. And lots of these promises, it was inherent in the promise that the king would come, the kingdom would be set up, God would establish his reign, and well, what would happen? Well, human beings would be transformed from the inside. They would be made new. They would be given a new heart. Look in Jeremiah 31. This is um, one of the key texts of the new covenant of the age to come that we're living in. Jeremiah 31. Behold, he says, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. But not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day that I took them out by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. So new covenant, it's going to be different. What's different about it? Watch. Verse 33. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God. They shall be my people. That was in the old covenant. No longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. That's new. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. There's forgiveness in the old covenant. The biggest difference between these two covenants is that the human beings aren't going to be able to break the second one. God, just like Jeremiah, looks at the covenant, finds the problem in the humans, and says, I guess i got to fix that. So here's what I'll do. I'll put my law inside of them. I'll change them from the inside out. And then that won't spew forth anymore. Look in Ezekiel 36. Actually, you have it on your worship guide. We can just look up top here. Ezekiel 36, God says this, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. I'll give you a new heart, a new spirit. When my spirit's inside of you, look at this. I'll cause you to walk in my statutes. Since you want to have a choice. God is looking at the covenant. He's looking at his relationship with creation. And he's saying, I did my part. The covenant wasn't flawed. You did your part. Okay, I'll do my part and I'll do your part. I'll transform you. I'll fix this. And that day, in the new covenant, when the kingdom's established, hearts will be transformed, spirits will be renewed, laws will be written on the inside. It was into this world that Jesus was making these, these claims about the heart being filthy, but the kingdom coming. So look um, in Mark chapter 10. Uh, I want to show you something here uh, from a slightly different angle, but I think it makes the clay- case pretty clearly. Mark chapter 10. You've got to follow me here. We're going to make a couple moves. You need to stay with me, okay? Mark 10, we'll pick up verse 2. Um, if you're seeing your subtitles, it's teaching about divorce. Um, and you're wondering, how does this have to do with the new heart? Well, I'll show you. Um, Mark 10, verse 2. And the Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? The reason this is a test, because the uh, so-called king of the Jews, Herod, um, had, made, had a very public divorce. And John the Baptist had been very public about critiquing his divorce. And John the Baptist very publicly was beheaded by Herod. The test here is, Jesus, will you incriminate yourself the way that John the Baptist did? In fact, the context where they are um, implies this. Herod's watching. 
What do you think about divorce? That's not an innocent question. It's not an innocent question in the political world, particularly when your older cousin got killed for talking about it. So here's what Jesus does as a wise man, right? Um, he, he turns the question on them. We saw it earlier. He answered them, well, what did Moses command you? How do you read it? What did you find in there? And they reply back, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. This is true. In the Mosaic Law in Deuteronomy, divorce is allowed. You have permission under certain circumstances to divorce your wife. There are steps they have. This is how you do it. Now watch what happens here. They had permission to divorce. Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he, Moses, wrote this commandment for you. So Jesus says you had permission because your hearts were hard. But where does he go in time? Look at him. From the beginning of creation, so he goes back to Genesis 1 and 2, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. In Genesis, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let man not separate. And in the house, the disciples, again, public statement, he goes back into the house to explain it a little more in detail. The disciples asked him about it, and he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Um, this thing he said in the house would have been the statement that would have gotten him killed. Public cryptic statement in the house. Here are the details. But watch the, the syllogism. Watch the, the line of thinking here. Moses lets you get divorced because your hearts were hard. I'm no longer letting you get divorced. What's the missing implied step there? Your hearts are no longer going to be hard. The only way Jesus can retract Moses' law and go back to the beginning of creation before sin is if, in fact, something about sin was being dealt with. Is if, in fact, the world that he was speaking into was different than the world Moses was speaking into. Because Moses was speaking to a group of people who had hardened, filthy hearts. But Jesus was speaking to a group of people who in the kingdom would have renewed hearts, cleansed and washed. So he says, but God's joined together, let no man break apart. Not because Moses was more generous than he was. Not because Jesus wants to see you suffer. And Moses was like, oh, I understand that you're real tough. Because Jesus said what we talked about at the very beginning here. There's a new reality. It's not business as usual. The game has changed. The rules are different. And what that means in a lot of cases is morality or, or um, what we would consider ethics are stepped up a level or radicalized. Why? Because we're not, we're not hardened human beings anymore. The dragon skin has come off. And at the very least, it's in the process of coming off. So the kingdom contains within it a cure for hardness of heart. This is in line with all of the prophecies about what would happen when the kingdom came. Jesus comes announcing the kingdom of God. It's here. It's finally happening. And he announced it to a group of people into a world that has fallen and rebelled and gone away. And part of the package, part of the announcement, part of the agenda is that human beings would find their hearts softened, would find a new heart put inside of them, would find a spirit and dwelt inside of them, would find the law written on their hearts. How does this happen? Well, this is where we talk about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is given the task of transforming our hearts. 
Holy Spirit is the, the hero in the book of Acts, which will be in the new year. It's called the book of Acts, but it really only talks about two disciples in length. In reality, it's, just, it's the book of the Holy Spirit. I mean, it's, it's all about the Holy Spirit. He shows up and does awesome things at every little turn. We'll read the book of Acts, and we'll really be on the edge of our seats just waiting for the Holy Spirit to show up. Because when he shows up, that's when the action starts. Yeah, there are these disciples, and yeah, they do this and this and this. But it's when he shows up that things happen. Notice the disciples don't have kind of this renewed heart, it seems, until after Jesus' death and resurrection at the time of Pentecost, when the Spirit, when the breath, when the power of God catches up to them after Jesus' work on the cross. And then they're changed. You don't have a new heart just by deciding to do something or just by starting to believe. You have a new heart by being fully engulfed by the work of Jesus on the cross through his resurrection, by being fully um, encompassed by his love and grace, by being fully invited into the kingdom of God. And notice even in the book of Acts, they're still not perfect. They're still struggling. The dragon skin is coming off slowly and at times painfully. Yeah, this transformation, it can be slow. Spiritual growth is a crawl. It's like a child growing. You don't see it when it happens. You see it when you look back or you see a picture. And you go, oh wow, they, they grew a whole lot that year. And the day to day, you don't see it, you don't notice it. It can be slow. It's not a microwave type thing in our instant age. It can also, if we're honest, be, be, be painful. Sometimes it feels like it's cutting to the core of who we are. Like yeast is having the, the skin scraped off of him from Aslan. The call for, for kingdom people, the call for you and I, um, is what we might call um, to practice the virtues. I think virtues, understanding virtues, are the best way for you and I to understand life in the kingdom, and particularly what we're called to do. A virtue is a habit or a practice you're called to implement, you're called to practice it, you're called to put it into work. Um, now on the basis of a future goal. So a virtue sees a goal or sees the future and says, this will be there. So it should be here and it will get me there. So virtues are things you practice now because they'll help you reach the goal. And in fact, they'll be in the goal. Eugene Peterson um, has this phrase, I quoted it here for you in our, our worship guide. Kingdom people are called to long obedience in the same direction. This is from Eugene Peterson. Long obedience in the same direction. Slow and steady practice. I have no, um, I have no dramatic dreams that doing a six-week series on life in the kingdom will all of a sudden mean we spend our money like kingdom people and we pray like kingdom people and we're humble like kingdom people and we love our enemies like kingdom people. No, it just doesn't, it doesn't work like that. But a long obedience in the same direction. Small step after small step after small step. Faithful. Falling occasionally and being picked back up by our friends, our community of faith by our Lord and walking in the same direction. Walking in the same direction. We must learn to live now the life of eternity. And this is the call for kingdom people. Learning to live now. Learning to play the notes that are going to be in the symphony of eternity. Learning the language, the grammar, the syntax of the language of eternity. Learning the roles of the play of eternity. 
And then practicing them now. Getting into them now. Joining Christ on His kingdom work. Why? Well, because the kingdom has come. As God is setting up His reign on earth as it is in heaven, and human beings are invited into it. There's an implicit invitation with that, and also an implicit warning if you would refuse. And what you find, and this is why I wanted to close with this as we end the series, what you find with this kingdom announcement and invitation is you find a spirit, you find a breath, you find a power blowing through creation like a breeze on a fall day. And it's flipping the world upside down. It's flipping you and I upside down. Romans would say that the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead lives, pulses inside of believers, pulses inside of those inside of the kingdom. This is a verse we take for granted. This is a verse that we don't realize the, the, the crazy power behind it. So approximately 2,000 years ago, Jesus showed up after years of praying and hoping and, and singing and reading. And he said, it's here. Time's fulfilled. The good news. It's not business as usual. It's new creation. It's grace. It's salvation. It's power. It's beauty. It's justice. It's peace. It's joy. And you and I are called to respond. By faith we will. By His grace, we'll find our lives in His kingdom. Christ has come, and the nations are glad. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for our time over these past few weeks. Thank You for the scriptures that You have given us. Um, Thank You for the ability and the chance and the time to come together and study um, and worship um, and pursue You and stretch our minds. I pray, Father... Um, that as we do such things, that you would increasingly transform us, that you would um, help us to feel, notice that that we have a a heart of flesh now, not a heart of stone. A heart of stone doesn't feel, but a heart of flesh feels. A heart of flesh can feel pain. A heart of flesh can fall and then get back up again. Father, I pray that, that when we hear your voice like a loud lying saying, follow us, that we would follow you. And, and that when we realize that it's time to lay down and let you undress us and dress us new, we would do so. Father, I pray that you would be with us and that you would transform us powerfully, that we would be your kingdom people called to live with you and for you. Fill us up and send us out. We love you. It's in your son's name that we pray all of these things. Amen.